listening to Radio Free Philosophy. Welcome once again to Radio Free Philosophy. My name is Kevin Brown. And I'm Bob Uricue. And we're going to continue our discussion about the existence of God this week, focusing on a different type of argument this time. Right, last week we discussed the teleological argument, or as is commonly known, the argument for the existence of God based on design. And so, since Thomas Aquinas used that for one of his, for, as one of his famous five proofs for the existence of God, let's look at a couple of his other arguments, at least one other argument, um, called the cosmological argument, which has several kinds. Yeah, they all seem to have a sort of a common theme which is that uh, things need a cause and things just can't be the cause of themselves and so the cause has to be something separate from the thing itself and when you're talking about something like the universe it, it needs a particular kind of cause and that cause for Aquinas turns out to be what we understand as God. Sure, and he's developing a theme originated by Aristotle who didn't call his um, the object of or the conclusion of his argument God? He called it the unmoved mover or the uncaused cause. Everything based, is based on reality. The teleological argument is based on the reality of the world. It's there. It's before us. And so is the cosmological argument. In fact, the word cosmos does mean word. So we look at the world, and in the teleological argument, we asked, "It's so well designed. Does it have a designer?" Here in the cosmological argument, we look at the fact of the world's existence and we ask, how did it come to be? And one advantage, uh, it seems to be, over the teleological argument is you don't have to make the argument that the world is designed. Even if the world were a chaotic uh, place, uh, the cosmological argument might still work because it's simply saying that whatever exists, there has to be, has to be a cause of it. Sure even if it's total chaos. Uh, Aquinas doesn't think that because he does include a, a version of the teleological argument in his proofs, but it comes at the end, so one guesses that it might not be, in Aquinas's mind, the most important of his ways of proving the existence of God, because he starts with one that's more fundamentally based on Aristotle's notion of causality. Mm -hmm. In fact, he has two prongs to his argument, motion and causality, and his motion argument goes this way. No one can doubt the existence of motion. Things are moved on the earth. And everything that's moved must be moved by something else. Now, you can't carry that way back to infinity, otherwise there would be no first mover. So there has to be a prime mover, an original mover, or there would be no motion anywhere in the earth. And by motion he means change. And yeah, so it's not simply a matter of things physically moving around. Any change uh, counts in Aristotelian terms as a type of motion. Mm -hmm. And if there's one thing we can't deny, that's change. Nothing seems permanent. And 
and so it seems like a good starting point. If everything changes, there has to be a changer to make the change happen. And so, that, since we can't bring that back to infinity, as Aquinas would say, and even Aristotle, then there has to be an initiator of change, the proactive part of the universe, and that Aristotle called the prime mover, or Thomas Aquinas calls God. And I guess one of the questions with regard to that proof is what, what would be wrong with there being an infinite regression of changers or agents of change? Uh, his argument seems to depend on the idea that, that however far back that regression could go, it has to have a starting point at, at some point. It can't go back forever. Certainly. Just as Darwin, as we discussed last time, gave us this notion of change or time development uh, adaptation taking place over eons, over millions of years. So we could think of motion as happening over long, long periods, even outside time, uh, immeasurable periods. Why couldn't a chain of movers go out to infinity? For, for Aquinas it was a logical impossibility, but Aquinas didn't have the the advantage of our notion of long periods of time. We speak of uh, Pleistocene epochs and in geology. Aquinas didn't have that. Yeah, he, he likely thought of it uh, maybe using an analogy like this. Suppose you were in a classroom and your assignment was to go read an infinite number of books and you weren't allowed to come back to class until you had completed that assignment. Well, you'd never go back to class. You can't read an infinite number of books. You can't get through an infinite series. And so the fact that you can't do that must mean that the series is finite. In other words, if you're saying the existence of the universe won't happen until there have been an infinite series of causes, well, then we'd all still be waiting on the existence of the universe. It wouldn't right. be here. So the mere fact that it is here for Aquinas logically implies the series of causes leading to the universe was finite. It might have been a long series of causes, but it had to have a beginning, because if it didn't have a beginning, we couldn't see the result now. So Aquinas has the blinders of the Middle Ages on, and so does Aristotle, even before the Middle Ages. But those blinders have taken off modern science, because we can think of vast reaches of space. We have the Hubble telescope that can photograph things so far beyond our sense of distance that it's staggering. So in a sense we have to broaden our horizons more and broaden our thinking and not even put logical limits. Perhaps that's what's being suggested by modern science. So that does tend to weaken the argument from motion. And further, on the subatomic level, observations of subatomic particles seem to reveal that these things can go in motion on their own. Does there have to be anything to move them? Yeah, that uh, does present a strange challenge to Aquinas' argument, uh, which perhaps is why he comes with a second position. In addition to the motion argument, we can deal with uh, a different way of looking at the question, because even if you say, well, we can explain motion using some scientific principles, well, we still have to explain the cause of the existence of things in general. Mm -hmm. And then what do we do? Well, again, we're faced with the reality of the law of cause and effect. There's one thing that we can't deny. It's that 
everything that happens happens because of something that, that causes it to be or to happen. Nothing just happens. Yeah, this is not unique to uh, the Western mind either. Uh, this is a central point even in Buddhism, the law of cause and effect. Uh, if you listen to the Dalai Lama speak, he talks quite a lot about this. It's a central part of Buddhist metaphysics, and the idea uh, is very similar, that you can't have something uh, magically be its own cause. There has to be a preceding cause for the effect. And although a Western philosopher like Hume would challenge this notion of causality, um, it just seems to make a lot of sense to a realist to say there's nothing in this universe that didn't get caused by something. And, and again, here's where Aquinas brings, and Aristotle also, brings in the infinite chain. If you drew a series of causes out to infinity, then nothing would ever get caused. The universe would never happen. Now, you might respond to that by saying, well, how come the cause of the universe couldn't be itself? And Aquinas actually addresses this. Uh, again, he takes a logical stance on it. The idea of something being its own cause is quite ridiculous because if you stop and think about what cause really is, cause always precedes effect. It has to come before the effect. So if, let's say, I were the cause of myself, I'd have to exist before I existed, which is obviously ridiculous. Mm -hmm. If the universe were its own cause, then it would have to exist prior to its own existence, which seems impossible. Yeah, it's logically repugnant to to Thomas and to Aristotle. So both of them conclude to the existence of an uncaused cause. They posit that there must be to, to account for causes. There must be a cause that, that was not caused. And this must be so powerful that Aquinas calls it God and Aristotle would call it the, again the uncaused cause. And this strikes people as a, a very strange idea, the notion of an uncaused cause but of course the reason why it has to be uncaused is to get out of the series, uh, the infinite series that leads to the problem. If there has to be a first, the first itself can't have a cause, otherwise it's not the first. So there has to be a qualitative difference between the unmoved mover, or what Aquinas calls God, and every other type of cause. They, they can't be the same entity, because if it was just one more cause, just like every other cause, well, then obviously that wouldn't be the first. It would have to have its own cause, and you'd be right back in the regression. Sure, and this same kind of reasoning was shared by the, uh, the Arabic philosophers, the Muslim philosophers in the Middle Ages, people like Avicenna, or even Sena, however you want to pronounce it. Um, that's why it's sometimes called the Kalam argument. Kalam meaning, in Arabic, discourse. And, in effect, it was used by the Arabic philosophers, called that way because it was a theological discourse um, using words to explain how the universe came about. And it goes like this, whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe had a cause. That's perfect deductive reasoning. The only potential flaw there might be the idea that the universe is in fact something that had a beginning. Uh, Aquinas, I think, recognized that philosophically speaking you couldn't really definitively answer the question of whether the universe had a beginning or not. Uh, Revelation tells us that it does. That is, if you look in the Bible, uh, it speaks of the uh, universe or everything having a beginning. But you don't want to use that as the basis for your proof. Uh, that's sort of begging the question. Assuming 
the, the fact you're trying to prove, which is God's existence. Mm -hmm. And so Aquinas takes it one step further and says, well, let's make the assumption that the universe didn't have a beginning. That is, let's assume the universe is eternal. That way we leave aside the notion of uh, creation, which may or may not be correct. But even an eternal universe, though it doesn't need a creation, does need a cause. Mm -hmm. And then Aquinas thinks he has a stronger basis upon which to make that argument. Yes. Now, in from our perspective, and remember Thomas didn't didn't have this per perspective at all. We are used to speaking of the universe in terms of an age of fifteen to twenty billion years, and we're accustomed to speaking of the universe beginning from a pinprick of energy, massively concentrated energy, and we're pretty comfortable with this. Most of our textbooks reflect that. That's the accepted wisdom. People commonly refer to it as the Big Bang Theory. But if, even if you posit the Big Bang Theory, and you say the universe sprung from that event, that singularity in time, as um, Hawking, Stephen Hawking calls it, what is there to say there couldn't be a whole chain of Big Bangs? Yeah, this is a, an interesting conundrum because uh, scientists uh, will be quick to tell you that uh, we can get back to literally seconds before the Big Bang, but we can't say anything really about the moment of the Big Bang, and certainly nothing before the Big Bang, because just in purely practical terms, if there was anything that occurred before the Big Bang, all the empirical evidence of that would have been obliterated by the Big Bang itself. Precisely. So it's outside our knowledge. And to, to posit the existence of God, or a God, or an unmoved mover, uncaused cause, as an explanation seems kind of facile in the light of modern astrophysics. Yeah, and it's, it's amazing that, that people don't recognize that because uh, a lot of critics uh, will say, well, I mean, if all you have to go on is the Big Bang, how do you know what caused that? And then they presume that the answer to that is God caused that, but then they don't stop and think through the logic of that and say, well, but if the Big Bang needs a cause, then the cause of the Big Bang needs a cause. So what caused God? But I object. Thomas Aquinas goes one further. He thinks he has the, the argument that's incapable of being opposed. And that is his so-called argument from contingency and necessity. That's another form of the ontological argument. Basically, it goes like this. Everything in the universe, everything about the universe, is contingent. That is, it depends on something else. It doesn't have to be. The universe itself is contingent. The opposite of contingency is necessity. Now, nothing in the universe is necessary. It doesn't have to be. But yet, hold on, it is. And because it is, it must have been brought into being by some being that is necessary. And Aquinas would conclude that is God. And maybe to understand that a little, we need to understand the concept of God, which will bring us to another type of proof for God's existence known as the ontological argument, which we'll take up right after the break. Some thoughts from John Cleese. Why are we so afraid to die? Are we concerned about the reckoning that we may have to face on the other side? Or does the thought of our non-existence terrify us? Perhaps neither. 
Perhaps what we fear most is no longer being able to do the things that we love. A message from the Philosophers of America, celebrating 100 years of thought. Okay, we're back from the break, and uh, since a lot of these proofs for the existence of God seem to depend on us understanding something about the nature of God, uh, it might be interesting to look at a proof that's based on the concept of God itself, as opposed to uh, physical evidence for God's existence. And curious enough, it's uh, a proof that is about t ten centuries old. Um, it originated with a man named Anselm. He was the abbot of a monastery, a Benedictine monastery, in England called the Abbey of Canterbury, though he came from France. And while he was abbot, or head of the monastery, some of his monks begged him to give them some proof that what they were giving up their life for was real, namely that God really existed. They were dedicating themselves to a life of prayer, of um, not exactly poverty, but they, they didn't own anything in common. They were very hard-working people. They built a lot of the monasteries in Europe, and a lot of the cities in Europe are founded on those monast monastery sites. So anyway, Anselm acceded to their wishes by answering this question, can you prove the existence of God? So, if you can envision this, try writing it down yourself. He said, I can prove the existence of God. I can use it a syllogism, uh, an argument, a deductive argument to prove this. Here we go. That than which nothing greater can be conceived must exist must necessarily exist. That's the first premise. The second premise is God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived. Therefore he concludes God must exist necessarily. Now basically he said to his monks, you like apples? How's them for apples? And by all accounts uh, some of them were very pleased mm -hmm. uh, with the argument especially since uh, in Anselm's much longer description, which you, you made much clearer than, than Anselm did, uh, he begins with uh, an interesting quote from one of the Psalms, where the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And Anselm thinks about this and recognizes that even the fool who says there is no God has to have some concept of what it is he's denying the existence of. So the fool understands the concept of God and the fool can only mean by that God being what you described it as that than which nothing greater can be conceived. You can't think of anything greater than God. That's what God has to be. That's the concept. Now, if you ask the question, well, how do I know that that being exists? Well, there's a simple test for that. You just ask the question, well, suppose you believe that that concept of God only existed in your mind. That's all God was. Some people actually believe that. You know, Some people say, Human beings just made up God. It's just an idea in the mind. Okay, well, if that's all God is, then couldn't you think of something greater than that? And the answer is, of course, I can think of something greater than that. I can think of a, a, a being who really exists. But since God is, by definition, that than which nothing greater can be conceived, then the idea in your mind can't be God. God has to be the being that actually really exists. Otherwise, you'd be able to think of something greater. Yes, and along those lines, one of his um, 
disciples named Gonilo actually did protest and said, how can you jump from, from speculation to existence? He said, you know, I'm stuck here in this cold, dreary climate of England, but I can think of a better place to live. I can think of a beautiful tropical island where it's always sunny. But because I can conceive of that island, doesn't make the island exist. Now Anselm had a response to that. Uh, the, the short version is that uh, uh, the monk who postulated that most perfect island was just confused. But the longer response is interesting to consider, so here, here goes. Anselm says, God cannot be conceived not to exist. And his explanation for this is as follows, and it assuredly exists so truly that it cannot be conceived not to exist. For it is possible to conceive of a being which cannot be conceived not to exist, and this is greater than one which can be conceived not to exist. Hence, if that than which nothing greater can be conceived can be conceived not to exist, it is not that than which nothing greater can be conceived. But this is an irreconcilable contradiction. There is then so truly a being than which nothing greater can be conceived to exist, that it cannot even be conceived not to exist. Now that should clear it up for everybody right oh, there. Oh, let me tell you, it sure does. Well, in um, response to that, let me also read a quote from an Australian philosopher named Douglas Gasking, who proves, using Anselm's logic, that God doesn't exist. Listen to how it goes. His first premise, the creation of the world is the most marvelous achievement imaginable. No doubt there. Secondly, the merit of an achievement is the product of its intrinsic quality and the ability of its creator. I'm not going to fault you there. Thirdly, he says, the greater the disability or handicap of the creator, the more impressive the achievement. For example, if you had a watch and it was made by a blind watchmaker, that would truly be a marvel to behold. So, fourthly, the most formidable handicap for a creator would be non-existence. Therefore, he says, if we suppose that the universe is the product of an existing creator, we can still conceive of yet a greater being, namely one who created everything while not existing. An existing God therefore would not be a being greater than which a greater cannot be conceived, because an even more formidable and incredible creator would be a God which did not exist. Therefore, God doesn't exist. What a response to that could the monks make, huh? Yeah, I don't know what Anselm would say to that. Uh, it would surely be confusing, I know that. But you know, a lot of our problems with these proofs for the existence of God seem to me to be the conditioning that centuries of Western art and theology have done to our minds. So we even write the word God with a capital G as if to say there is no other way to think about God because we're, we're using our Western constraints. We're, we're being limited by those constraints. Um, when we hear the word God we think of Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. A God is a bearded old man touching the created, the created Adam. But we have so many constraints in our thinking. Unlike the Islamic world which, which, which uh, condemns any possible uh, artistic rendering of God. So all these centuries of Christianity in the Western world have constrained us to think of God 
as having almost anthropomorphic characteristics to be man-like and so when when we think of God our image springs to mind of a God the bearded old man but in philosophy we, we should try to rid ourselves of those concepts yeah and it, it seems like it's so ingrained that even when we say we're thinking about God in a reflective way we can't help but impose some of those conditions that have been with us uh, for many people since childhood so even when you say well I'm gonna think about where God came from you're still not breaking out of that anthropomorphic approach you're just questioning uh, a particular piece of that puzzle whereas what philosophers encourage us to do is take a look at the whole puzzle and ask the question of whether that's even the correct picture at all never mind whether one piece fits here as opposed to there maybe the entire picture is wrong mm -hmm. uh, and I think a lot of people are, are bothered by that kind of question because it seems that the intent is to tear down one's beliefs when it might just be the case that we're trying to get somebody to really reflect on them as opposed to just reflect on them in the context in which they're used to uh, thinking. I mean to be able to break out of your frame of reference entirely is one of the things that philosophy encourages us to do. Yes, and if anyone has born with us this long into this broadcast and the previous broadcast, surely the question must have arisen, do these proofs offer convincing evidence for the existence of God? And a, a, a lot of people will say no, even people who are uh, uh, very devout in their faith. Um, in fact, sometimes I'll ask the question uh, when I'm teaching, before we get into the proofs, what do you think of the idea that this philosopher is claiming to provide a proof for the existence of God? And uh, many people will dismiss the whole idea out of hand, that is, that God cannot be proven. What seems interesting to me is how they'll, in the very next breath, say, but of course we believe in him, uh, which strikes me as a sort of a strange thing to understand that is you're, you're admitting that there's no proof or no evidence but yet believing all the same in the absence of evidence and in philosophy we try to base our approach on human reason and not on some authority like revelation um, and so we have to ask is it reasonable on the basis, basis of these arguments to, to acknowledge the existence of God? Is it reasonable? Or is it completely unreasonable if the proofs haven't worked? And uh, it's important not to confuse being reasonable with being uh, preferable or likable. Mm. I mean, it might be the case that we, we would all like to think that there's somebody out there looking down upon us and caring about us and concerned about us and going to um, lead us to a better place when we uh, pass away from this one. But just because that's likable or preferable doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. And the hard question we have to ask is, is there any evidence? Or, as you put it, is it reasonable? Uh, David Hume, whom we've talked about extensively through these broadcasts on, on God, said that a wise man proportions his belief to the evidence mm -hmm. and if the evidence is completely lacking well then we should proportion our belief to that that is to say we should withhold our belief yes indeed 
So we can conclude, I suppose, by saying that it would be perfectly reasonable for someone to go through life without having to believe in the existence of a deity. That would not be irrational if, if it can't be rationally demonstrated. And something else that would be reasonable to do at this point is to email us with any questions or comments you have about these broadcasts at our uh, uh, email address, askaphilosopher at yahoo.com. And we hope you'll contact us with uh, questions that we can use on the show. Let's sweeten that a little bit. If you email us and you indicate that you have enjoyed this broadcast or have been challenged by it, or maybe are irate because of the broadcast, email us and we'll throw 10 quality points your way for extra credit. All right, well, you'll never get a better deal than that, so we hope to receive uh, lots of emails, and we hope you'll continue listening to our broadcast here on Radio Free Philosophy. <laughs>